CBDC. The Bank for Canadian Entrepreneurs is a proud partner of the Startup Women podcast. BDC is here for women entrepreneurs in their efforts to move forward and achieve their business goals. To meet their specific needs, BDC provides financing, strategic advice, and has a wide selection of free resources. Find out more at bdc.ca forward slash women. BDC is here for what's ahead. Scotiabank Women Initiative is a signature program designed to increase economic opportunity for individuals who identify as women or non-binary to be successful now and in the future. This unique offering helps women pursue their best professional and financial futures by providing unbiased access to capital and tailored solutions, bespoke specialized education, holistic advisory services, and mentorship. For more information, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. You're listening to the Startup Women Podcast on the Startup Canada Podcast Network, where we help women entrepreneurs to start and build thriving businesses. On the Startup Women Podcast, we connect you with leading experts, entrepreneurs, and organizations that provide capital, mentorship, training, tools, and all of the support that you need to make your vision a reality faster. This podcast is a production of Startup Canada, Canada's entrepreneurship organization and is presented in partnership with the Business Development Bank of Canada and Scotiabank. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, CEO at Startup Canada. Welcome to the show. We are thrilled to have Nikki Weert on our show today. Nikki is a florist, farmer, and writer. Her farmer journey began in the winter of 2017 when she moved back to her hometown of Castor, Alberta to work under open prairie skies, grow food, and raise animals, and do so in a sustainable and ecological way. Since then, she's dabbled in a bit of everything, from bees to pigs, chickens, lambs, vegetables, and flowers. Now, she's narrowed down in her focus growing seasonal and sustainable flowers and raising grass-fed and finished lamb. Ladies Hat Farm is named after the Ladies Hat, a hill in a piece of Badlands owned by Nikki's mom. This spot has always been special to her family. It's somewhere they gather, celebrate, and grieve. It's where Nikki collects crocuses in the spring and sage in the fall, where she climbs to see the sunset and admire the prickly pear cacti. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Thanks so much for having me, Kayla. I am so excited to you know learn all about your entrepreneurial journey, Nikki. This is a long time coming. I'm very, very excited to kick off today's podcast episode. Yeah, me too. So what is the most important thing you want our audience to take away from our interview today, Nikki? So I was thinking about this, and I honestly think it has less to do with my business and more to do with the fact that I want other young women to be able to see themselves in roles of agriculture, that are different from um, quote unquote farm wife or, you know, that farm support. So that's really what I want to pull out of today's episode is that as a young female, you can be a farmer and we don't see very many role models in the industry 
um, myself, I grew up on a farm and I did not see young women as farmers. So I didn't even know it was an option to me. So I want that option to be present for other young females. Love that. So bring us on your entrepreneurial journey, Nikki. Why did you launch Ladies Hat Farm um, and how did it become what it is today? Bring us all the way back to the very beginning. Sure. Well, I grew up on a cattle ranch out in central Alberta, where I am now. Um, I was the fourth of five kids. Um, helped on the farm in some capacity, but more, maybe more in the like stereotypical female centric roles like gardening and um, maintaining the yard and preparing dinners for like our big cattle events. Farming was never something that I thought I wanted to do or something that was even presented as an option to me. Like in in high school, even though this is largely a farming community, Castor is where I'm at, I was going to be a nurse or a teacher, or I ended up being a journalist. Um, so that was the route I took. As soon as I turned 18, I left the small town. I was like, I'm never coming back here. Of course, I enjoyed the perks of being from a farm, like free meat and free eggs and veggies and stuff for my parents, but um, I never really saw myself back back on the farm. So I pursued a career in journalism for um, six, seven years, I guess. And that took me to Ottawa, um, to Carleton University, where I was doing my master's in journalism. While I was there, I started seeing or started noticing maybe this trend of young farmers who were from an urban background um, that moved to rural areas to start a farm. So these are what I would consider first generation farmers. They didn't inherit a farm. They didn't grow up on a farm. Um, you know, they might have had, we all have agricultural roots at some point, but um really largely didn't have that kind of inherent farm knowledge and background, yet they were actively pursuing this rural lifestyle. And what was first interesting to me is like, why? <laughs> why would you want this lifestyle? I saw how hard it was for my parents, like how hard you had to work. Um, and then the second thing that was most interesting to me was that they weren't following uh, conventional agricultural practices typically because they couldn't afford to. Um, not only could they not afford to, but you know, they had more um, idyllic environmental aspirations and, you know, wanted to farm sustainably and wanted to do it as an act of stewardship and an act of almost protest um, against our conventional food systems. And so I decided to write my thesis, which is like a large journalistic project on first generation farmers in Canada, who they were, like who's doing this, but then also what kind of challenges they were facing. Um, because there were many, but it kind of boiled down to these three things. And that was access to land, access to mentorship and access to finances. So I had the opportunity to interview like young farmers from across the country. And those three things like kept coming up over and over and over again. And through this journey and through meeting all these like super inspiring young people who were actively pursuing a rural lifestyle, I realized how privileged I was to have access to this if that's something I wanted to do. I knew that my parents would be incredibly supportive um, of me if I decided I wanted to move back to the farm, both with access to land and financially helping me get started. And I kind of had like this built-in mentor, maybe not specifically with what I wanted to do, but there is something about being on a farm, there's like knowledge that's just like inherent, that if you aren't raised on a farm, it might take years to actually gain that knowledge. Um, and I was also kind of jaded with journalism and uh, didn't really suit the nine to five, sit at a desk lifestyle. And so I decided to move home and start my farm, Ladies Hat Farm, which 
has evolved substantially over the past. This is, I just finished my fifth season, but, um, you know, I started with growing, um, vegetables and raising bees and pigs and laying hens and meat chickens. And then, um, over the years it's like shifted and evolved and I fell deeply and madly in love with flowers. So now I raise cut flowers. I still keep bees as a hobby and I raise, um, grass fed and finished lambs. So yeah, that's where I'm at today. Five years later. Crazy. Incredible. And full disclosure, listeners, uh, I did know Nikki when she was in Ottawa during her master's in journalism and have watched this journey in her returning back to Castor um, and, you know, entering this entrepreneurial journey as a farmer and and all of these incredible pivots that that she's done. So it has been, I've had a a front row seat at this journey, um, which has been so beautiful to watch from afar. Um, So Nikki, with, with, you know, you're mentioning lamb and flower farming where you're at now, you've been navigating different points of sustainability. And you sort of mentioned this earlier with first generation farmers approaching farming from a different lens or potentially prioritizing sustainability in a different way. Walk our listeners through the operations of focusing on sustainability um, and a couple of key examples that illustrate how you've built this farm with a sustainable lens. Yeah, for sure. In um, starting from scratch. And, and to say this, I'm not starting from scratch. I have access to um, my parents' like my parents' land, um, all of my dad's equipment, um, and that kind of thing. But when we look at the unsustainable practices in agriculture, we're often drawn to, you know, the, the huge machinery, like uh, diesel fuel. Um, we're, we're looking at like monocrop culture, um, spraying uh, with like pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, um, just all manner of spraying. We're looking at like ripping down trees for crop growing. We're looking at like large scale feedlot operations with um, with inhumane conditions for animals. Like all of this relates to sustainability as well as like the labor involved, right? Um, a lot of times mm-hmm. we're getting migrant workers in who aren't being paid properly or not in like proper work conditions. There's, there's so many different facets of sustainability. So this is kind of the lens I'm looking at that I see young farmers in my operation as well kind of going against. So I don't, I'm not certified organic, but all of the flowers and um, when I was growing vegetables as well that I grow are, um, you know, would check all those boxes. So there's no chemicals used. There's no sprays. I use my own seed or organic seed when I can and when it's affordable. In terms of my um, lambs, they are raised in the most humane way that I possibly can. Um, so they are um, raised on pasture solely on pasture. So the only time they're fed grain is from when I purchased them as wean lambs to transition them fully onto pasture, which is what a lamb stomach is uh, made to digest is grass, not grains. Um, So they're rotated daily on pasture, which um, allows for um, proper regrowth of grass as well as like it's intensive grazing it's called. So the lambs cut it down like really, really hard. And then they move on to the next bit of pasture aren't, aren't allowed to go back onto that pasture, that piece of pasture they grazed the day before. And this allows for um, like the grass to regrow, but like proper grazing allows for carbon sequestration. So um, this is kind of like the practice that you would mimic um, when you look at like how bison were on the land, the electric fence being the predator. So they would like graze really hard an area and then they'd move on to the next one because of predator pressure. So this is the same kind of practices that we see when we talk about rotational grazing, when we talk about intensive grazing, this is what we're doing. So that in itself is really sustainable as well as um, the fact that um, I'm now able to slaughter on farms. So um, in terms of like the ethical side of sustainability, the lambs, 
The only time that they're in a stock trailer is when I purchase them in the spring and then they're um, harvested on farm. So uh, the stress level is really low for them, which makes it more humane. Um, the other thing with the cut flowers that I'm really working on promoting in terms of sustainability is the floral industry is an incredibly unsustainable industry. And, and we think a lot about where our food comes from and, you know, the carbon footprint of where that food traveled from. And, you know, was it raised without uh, pesticides and sprays? Like, you know, do we know our farmer, all this stuff, but we never think about it with flowers. So that's mm. something I'm trying to really educate my customers on is from seed to when that flower is in your vase on your table or in your bouquet at your wedding, I like there's no middlemen. Um, you know, we have this kind of like in the flower community, this like hashtag grow and not flown kind of mentality where um, it's seasonal, it's local, and um, therefore it's sustainable. And so I also grow, not flown. That's a new one for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then like also just promote it, promoting the seasonality of flowers. Um, you know, the reason you can buy roses at the grocery store and they last for two weeks on your counter is because they've been doused in chemicals, like just doused in chemicals. Flowers are not supposed to live that long. Like those roses were picked probably two weeks before you even got them. Um, so, you know, just kind of educating my customers that enjoy those flowers for three days, maybe a week if you're lucky, but they are dead. They're dying as soon as you pick them. And then also like during the off season, really trying to promote the use of like dried flowers rather than especially in our zone where like our growing season really is only from like end of May to maybe like now end of September is when you can actually harvest fresh flowers. So really trying to promote, like I dry thousands and thousands of stems and try to promote like using dried flowers as an alternative, even for weddings um, to flying in roses. And I use roses cause it's an easy flower for everyone. Um, to understand, but flying roses from Africa or South America, um, where the practices are incredibly unsustainable and, um, you know, workers are readily abused and yeah. So that's where the sustainability side of things come in with my business. Amazing. And I love how you're approaching it from so many different perspectives. And the education piece, I think, is so interesting, even for myself. I don't think of, of flowers and the sustainability of the flower industry in the same way that I do other other verticals or other industry spaces. So I think that's, that's a bit of an aha moment for me. Um, I'm also really interested in diving deeper in your storytelling. Obviously, you have this incredible background as a journalist, bridging into farming, which is fairly unusual. Uh, but you really use social social media, your website, um, and your work as a journalist to convey this journey of, of being a farmer through this storytelling vehicle. How has connectivity and providing this perspective and championing other, uh, you know, rural and farming voices that, that are in your community through online storytelling, how has that um, supported your business or supported on the education side of your business? Yeah, good question. Um, I definitely think like my journalistic background has has helped me, um, yeah, tell my story. Um, because I, I, I do think I have an interesting story because I did have a, I had a career in journalism that was looking to be quite promising and I gave it all up because I felt like I wasn't fulfilled. And I mean, I think it's rare for people to take that, that risk. Um, mm. But this is also the really cool thing about these young farmers um, that we're seeing come in doing different things is it come from backgrounds that are different from just like growing up on a farm and you know maybe going to like 
trade school or farming school for like a year or two, but then moving back to the farm is we're, we're getting these young people with like my cousin, he's a carpenter and um, my friend, he's an electrician and his wife is an organizer and a yoga teacher. And like, it's amazing to see how these previous careers that people have had have helped shape their, their farming journey. Mm. But yeah, in terms of like connecting to people through um, social media is like, this is, well, first of all, this is how we market now, right? Like nobody listens really to the radio. Um, like nobody really looks at newspapers, like print papers and like that kind of advertising. So it's, it's really this amazing free tool that we have to market ourselves and our business. And I've kind of come to realize as the years have gone on and I'm using Instagram as a way to market my business is that I'm marketing myself more than I'm marketing my business. Um, mm. So giving people this kind of perspective of knowing their farmer, like maybe on a more intimate level that social media can provide because we all hear like, you know, thank your farmer, they grow your food, but who, who are our farmers? We don't know them. Like, especially if you're in the city, like you don't know who your farmer is. So being able to have this relationship, whether it's a pseudo relationship or not, which is what social media provides, is so important for people to be able to like look at an Instagram profile and be like, I bought a lamb from Nikki and I know I feel like I know her and I, I feel like I, I feel good spending my money with her business because I know how she's using it, too. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't know if that really answered your question, but um, I think like we've been really fortunate in our generation, like there's so many downsides to social media, but in terms of running a business and being an entrepreneur, like how amazing is it to be able to connect on like such a personal level with your customer? Mm, agreed. And, and the transparency that I think also is interesting within the farming industry that I can see where the lamb is in Nikki's farm. And I can see Nikki, you know, cutting these flowers and, and drying them and seeing that process um, brings out a more emotive experience as well as a consumer that I have the transparency that I know how, uh, you know, you're managing things on the farm, but then I also see you more actively in your business, which I think is really special uh, for every type of entrepreneur to be able to, to share with their network um, and champion, you know, this incredible business that they're investing so much time and energy into. Yeah. And again, it's that like, bringing it back to being like a young single female farmer like it is a daunting career to look at going into if you don't fit this like old mcdonald archetype of being a straight white male um so like being able like it's even i mean this is outside of social media but i have like a couple young girls in our community in this farming community where that old mcdonald archetype is the farmer um, you know, like that is who the farmer is still. I'm an outlier, 100%. Mm. Um, but I have a couple young girls who want to be me when they grow up, which is like, mm. makes me like get all like teary eyed because I never had that when I was growing up. Like I had a little girl dress up as me for Halloween. Like, that's, oh my God. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like that is, that's, I don't make a lot of money at this job, but at least I'm inspiring some young girls to like see that they could have a future as a flower farmer. Like how beautiful is that? Mm. 
So incredible. So going into a little bit more detail around, um, you know, women run farms or the roles that women have in farms um, and those becoming more and more common across the country. Um, a lot of these women are, you know, between the ages of 35 and 54, according to the CBC. What does that look like from your perspective? How are these conversations shaping with other women, um, you know, within on the farm or leading farms across the country? What are the um, comments or narratives around their roles on the farm and how the, or how are those evolving? Um, yeah, so this question is interesting to me because I just read this Twitter thread this morning about, um, you know, we need to stop using the phrase farm wife. And mm. um, I mean, this is, it's a problematic term um, for a lot of reasons, but even now the comments on that Twitter thread um, by men we're calling the woman that posted it attention-seeking, um, that like she deserved this harassment and and just like kind of blew me away and made me really upset because I think about how much progress we've made um, with women in agriculture. Like it is the number of women in agriculture is going up. Like this is, you know, a beautiful thing to see, but it is like going up at a snail's pace. And with the number of people we need entering agriculture right now, because of how many people are aging out of agriculture, mm. like we need that number to increase dramatically. Um, and like one thing I wanted to bring up with you, Kayla, was um, this, this idea of a woman's place on a farm. Um, so historically, often it's about how, um, what women's roles were on the prairies and farming. It's really interesting, but looking back at like the role of a woman on the farm was typically, okay, you raise the children, which is like, oh my God, a job in itself. Cause like back in the day, people were having like 12. Um, and then you were also like milking a cow and making cheese and like maybe selling milk and cream to your neighbors. You had a big vegetable garden. Maybe you were like hustling some veggies on the side. You had chickens, like whether they're meat chickens or laying hens. And you kind of had these like side hustles that was bringing in cash for the, um, for the farm. Because a lot of times a farm, whether it's like grain or cattle or whatever kind of farm you're doing, you rely on one paycheck a year. So the rest of the year, the woman who's raising the kids is also running these little side hustles, um, which is really cool. So bringing in that cash that's going to pay for, uh, maybe it's going to pay for the vehicle to get fixed or it's going to pay for, you know, the new clothing that the children need to go to school or, you know, all these like little things. And so that was like the woman's role on a farm for, for decades. Um, and it's an incredibly important and equal role and it should be seen that way and then quota systems came in <laughs> which were um, designed by men um, the boards are primarily all men still and that was like okay so you're not allowed to milk a cow and sell the milk um, you have to have a quota system like you have to have a quota for a cow and one dairy cow is like fifty thousand dollars and you need like a minimum of i don't know i don't even know what the numbers are but like 20 to even run a dairy farm and sell the milk to the the you know milk board and same thing came in with um, meat chickens and laying hens. Like, okay, well, you're only allowed to have 2,000 meat chickens a year. So when we look at these quota systems, um, typically on things that were women's roles on the farm, um, so so no longer were women able to make like this little side hustle. So um, even if they wanted to be on the farm full time and be supporting the farm, they were forced to work off farm, whether that was a choice or not, to support the farm throughout the rest of the year when they're not getting that one big paycheck. So, I mean, it's so complicated and, and we see like even now it's like, so women decide to stay home with their kids and, and live and support the, 
the like I put in quotation marks the farmer, which is their husband, by you know making sure there's dinner on the table, making sure the books are done, making sure the children are looked after, and they're still considered a farm wife. Just terrifying. But what I'm seeing, especially in flower farming and and maybe market gardening to some extent too, which I see are like um, more family friendly farm oriented uh, uh, occupations, I guess. Like the flower farming community is primarily women. Like I don't, you know, sometimes it's a, you know, a couple that are doing it together. But if it's just the flower business is primarily women and they're homeschooling their kids or they have young kids and they're able to do it. And their partner who might or might not be a farmer has their job or, you know, is maybe running the grain side operation of the farm. But then the women are running the flower side operation of the farm. Mm. So I kind of like see this like flower farming trend as like pulling back to those, um, you know, like the milking of the cow or raising laying hands and selling the eggs. Um, and as, as something that's accessible for women who who want to be a stay-at-home mom and still contribute in a meaningful way to the farm business. Um, so yeah, these like smaller enterprises are, I think, kind of coming back, um, but it is just normalizing them and, and, and being okay with that maybe being like the more female role on the farm. So interesting, Nikki. And there's so many just, you know, regular parallels to a, a more, quote, not even traditional side hustle, but across other industries that, you know, we see so many women um, bringing in additional revenue for their families through different side hustles that are flexible and that they can do on their own times and and the empowering nature of having that, um, that role for, for either, you know, women that, that have full-time roles or not. Um, either in traditional workplaces or at home, uh, we're seeing so many different evolutions of what women in entrepreneurship can look like as well. So this is super interesting to see um, across this specific farming um, space, plus this this additional component within flowers. Um, that that's so fascinating. I never never considered it from that that perspective. And another thing I just want to bring up really quickly in terms of like um, females farming is. Like, <laughs> this just irked me because it happened to me yesterday and it was my father who called me it, but he said, um, I guess that's the life of a gardener. And I'm like, oh, wow, mm. like you, you still don't see me as a farmer. And it's like, interesting, like I am producing a commodity. I run a business, like, and I'm still just a gardener, which I mean, God, gardening is like really hard work, but um I've, I've, I've had this conversation with other um, vegetable and flower farmers where because of the scale that you work at, right? Like, I, I mean, I'm not working with quarter sections, sections of land. I work with like acreage, like an acre mm-hmm. of land. Um, but yeah, just that kind of like still not legitimizing me as a farmer. And this comes from my own family, which is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, so just changing our language around it is, is super important. And often, you know, one one thing I keep coming back to is farming being left out of um, the equation and the language when we talk about entrepreneurship. You know, you are running a business um, that often, you know, farming can be seen and and any, you know, agriculture related business can often be slightly disconnected to, you know, what we think of as an entrepreneur, as the tech tycoon, you know, building the next unicorn. Um, But the grit 
and the resilience and the planning and you know all these different components of business are often even more challenging within the farming space than they are in other um, other kind of knowledge based industries or in other spaces. How do you see? entrepreneurship and farming and this conversation being bridged? Do you see farmers identifying as entrepreneurs? And is that an empowering thing for the community? Or do you still see this kind of um, this barrier, this bridge between the two concepts? I mean, I think I think farmers 100% are, um, you to have a successful farm, you have to be business minded. Right? Mm. Um, you have to be planning in advance. And like, I, I, I look at my dad, he's a very successful farmer because he's very business minded. Um, but like, unlike other occupations or entrepreneurial endeavors, we are so dictated by what the earth is throwing at us. But if we talk about climate change, like who are, who is going to be affected most, um, in our, I'm talking about in like Canada, I would say is like our agricultural industry, right? Like this year we had a terrible drought, like terrible drought where I'm at. Um, probably um, they're saying like the worst drought since even like before the Great Depression, like just this year, alone, right? We don't have like a decade of it. And so, okay, not only are we dealing with like drought, but then like hail and um, early frosts and late frosts and um, just all these factors that a lot of other entrepreneurs really don't have to like think about when they're building their business. I mean, it, it all trickles down, right, eventually um, through the different industries. But um, yeah, I just think farming is, you you have to be business minded. But when you think like that, it can kind of take away from like the joy of, you know, working outside and working with the land and when you have to think about your bottom line still all the time. And how do you find that balance? Like when you're you're providing advice to other young women that, you know, are exploring farming as a career path or looking at, at kind of following a, a similar journey to you, what advice do you have around the, balancing the business side and what brought you to this passion and purpose-filled role on the farm as well? How do you find the balance between the two? Yeah, I'm going to be honest, like this is not the most, I mean, it's getting better, but um, it's not the most financially lucrative career. I mean, some farmers, they do make a ton of money, but this often comes after they've inherited, you know, a ton of land. They've inherited all the machinery. They've inherited all the infrastructure, right? Like it's, and, and uh, like growing up, we didn't like, I, we were quite poor growing up. Um, but all of our money, like not our money, my parents' money was invested in land and assets. And like farmers often live poorly, die rich is kind of the saying. Mm. And I see it with my own business. Like slowly I'm getting to a point where it's like, okay, you know what? Like I'm not in the red anymore. Amazing. Um, mm -hmm. But I still work off farm during the winter because um, the, the streams of agriculture that I've chosen are very seasonal. And I think that is what we have to um, tell people is that it's okay to continue to work off farm. And I think, especially with the pandemic, like just normalizing how easy it is to work from home. Like I've been working from home before working from home was a thing. Um, but <laughs> mm -hmm. like, if there's a way that you can take whatever you did in your past life, like, I mean, mine is the journalism communication side of thing and make it work so that you can farm and still, you know, get some income from that until your farm is in a place that um, it can financially support you. Yeah, that's fine. Like, it's fine to work off farm. And a lot of people do it. And you can still consider yourself a farmer. 
Um, so yeah, that's kind of the conversation I would have with someone is like, don't expect to like start a farm business and just be like, I'm a farmer. Like, like wake up and one day it's like, yeah, my farm's making money. It, it probably won't unless you're like lucky enough to kind of inherit it all without all the debt. Mm -hmm. And with, you know, the barriers that if you don't have access to land, you don't have mentorship, you don't have the finances, um, you know, what, what change are you hoping to see in the supports in place for aspiring farmers and specifically women farmers? Um, what would you like to see to, to address some of these gaps or this, this huge barrier to entry, I guess would be the word. Like what, what could we do either in terms of government support, private sector investment, what is needed to help bridge that gap? Yeah. Um, great question. A million things. Um, like the first thing that I think we need to acknowledge is that there is a difference um, between farms. So quite often government programming and like grants and just like the general language that you get from government institutions is like a blanket farm, right? Mm. But my farm operation is significantly different from my neighbors down the road who control 30,000 acres and have a massive grain operation. And so to consider us in the same kind of blanket statement is, is harmful. Like it, it, well, it's not, I shouldn't say harmful. Maybe it's not, it's not beneficial to either. Right. So first off, I think that there needs to be different programming for different scales of farming. Um, like I should not be applying for the same grants that my neighbors who like work in millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars a year versus my like tens of thousands of dollars a year. Um, we should not be applying for the same programs. So one of the things that um, we talk a lot about uh, when we talk about or when my friends and I talk about this issue is in, say, BC, it's a little bit easier. And you can see this trend of young farmers, um, you know, really picking up of like more diverse farmers and stuff because the land is more manageable. So you're working with like acres, like parcels of maybe like 10 acres of land or 15 acres of land, which is totally affordable out here in the prairies. Like I would say Alberta, Saskatchewan, particularly. We say like more young people need to be on the land, but these farmers are selling their quarter sections or sections of land. And you're talking like millions and millions and millions of dollars. How is a young person who doesn't have a lot of money afford that? They don't. So then it just gets sold to the highest bidder, which is usually the farmer down the road who already has like a multi-million dollar farm operation right? And can leverage all of his assets and his land to buy that, all that other land. So that's like, and I mean, somebody wants to retire, like a farmer wants to retire. He's worked like crazy hard his whole life and he deserves to retire like everybody else does. So he can't just be giving land away. Um, but I think like we need to kind of work with like government agencies to like financially support a young person going to like buy Maybe they only want 10 acres of land. Like, how do you parcel that off of a quarter section? Like, it's just so complicated. Um, and like, even just like trying to get a loan for the amount of money you would need, like you'd be laughed out of an agricultural lender. If you didn't have like the background, if you didn't have assets, if you didn't have like, like, uh, yeah, farming background, like they're not going to take you seriously. Um, like even... I think I like went to an agricultural lender a couple years ago and all I needed was a $25,000 loan to um, get some infrastructure built on my farm. And like they told me it wasn't worth their time. So like that's kind of the like attitude you're working with is like, oh, you're not a legitimate farmer because you're not like working in the millions of dollars, um, which isn't accessible for young 
young farmers, female farmers, and farmers with like, um, like indigenous black people of color, like, you know, it doesn't work, work for that demographic. hundred percent. And, and I think these parallels could be, you know, seen in, in entrepreneurship in general, we see these huge investments in these high growth companies, um, you know, that either already have this incredible traction because they have this solid foundation based on, you know, other privileged variables that brought them to where they are. Where's the support for the tiny, you know, sole proprietor or somebody who's building a smaller enterprise, um, that doesn't have access to all of those other resources. Like there, there are a million other examples that I can think of, of paralleling this in a really interesting way. But to your point about, you know, funding and painting farmers with the same brush, regardless of size or scope or scale or type of um, product that they are farming, uh, that's so interesting. I had no, no idea that that was, that was the approach. Um, so interesting to see that there's clearly a lot of room for improvement in supporting first-generation farmers, new farmers coming from, um, you know, other industries like yourself. Um, yeah, there's there's potentially a lot of room for growth here, which is challenging, but also potentially exciting as we look at at farming as a potential entrepreneurship vehicle. Mm-hmm. One thing, like just to like make this example like a little bit more, um, like make more sense to like just yeah. average person, is okay. So I grow like. I don't know, 300 different varieties of flowers on like, let's just say an acre, just to make it super easy. I can't get like your standard hail insurance through the government for my crop because I'm growing more than one kind of thing on that acre. So for me to apply for hail insurance for my crop, I need to grow like an acre of sunflowers, which is like a lot of sunflowers. Um, but that would just cover those sunflowers. So like your typical farmer has, I don't know, 5,000 acres of canola. Like, yeah, no problem. They'll get hail insurance, but like a vegetable or a flower farmer where you're growing like such a diversity of, of crop, you won't get covered. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. I had no idea. This, these are all my aha moments, Nikki. This is so, so interesting. And I'm sure really eye-opening to our, our listeners as well. Yeah, that's just one example, but that's kind of like, I think, gives you an idea of what I'm talking about in terms of like policy and programs that like need to be separated in terms of the farm size or yeah. Yeah. And all of the dependent variables that, yeah, that the insurance is then, you know, a dependent variable to X, Y, Z, other components of the farm, that all these things are interconnected and would support the sustainability and growth of the farm from all these different angles. Um, Super interesting. So Nikki, wrapping up what has been a very colorful and really informative conversation, uh, final takeaways, final pieces of advice or recommendations for our listeners who are joining us today. Yeah, I just think if you... If you seriously think that like farming would be a career that you would be interested in pursuing, like don't expect to like start your farm business tomorrow. Like go and volunteer in farms or like the the young agrarians, um, mostly in like, it's mostly in uh, Western Canada, but I think it's making its way East um, is an awesome program that like provides like apprenticeship opportunities that are paid. Um, Like I've had an apprentice through that program for the past two summers, it's amazing. Um, young people who are interested in agriculture want to like try out different things. They want to see how it works. They want to see different aspects of the business. Like go and like try farming. Like it's, I wish that I would have, like it's taken me five years to kind of figure out what I'm doing on my farm. And I've had the, the crazy privilege to be able to do that. Right. To have that, like um, that learning space because I, 
my parents have supported me, like have given me access to land for free, which is not everyone gets that, right? Um, without the expectation, I'm going to take over like the cattle ranch or the farm business. I can actually do my own enterprise on this land. Like I wish that I would have spent a couple summers working on different farms and, you know, seeing how they do things, like how they manage with just like a single person operation, like, you know, maybe figuring out what my passions were before I invested a ton of money into different things. Mm. Um, but yeah, like I, I do think that we need, we, we desperately need more young people on the land. Um, and it starts with like that curiosity and, and deciding whether that's something you want to do. But then it also is like at a government level, we need more support. We need more encouragement. Like in high school, we need teachers telling young people in the city, wherever they are, that they could be a farmer and not create this like unrealistic, unrealistic, um, like this is an unrealistic occupation. If you didn't grow up on a farm, it's not, um, there's young people doing it. There's, some resources, we just need more. I don't know. My little soapbox around. Like, <laughs> That's great. More people get out. I'm like, I get a farm. Like, I get to spend all day with flowers. Like, I work like a dog. I'm not getting, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I work 16 hours a day on average during my growing season. Mm. But, like, I get to play with flowers all day. Like, <laughs> come on. And they are gorgeous. Trust me, listeners. They are gorgeous. <laughs> check them out very (laughs) idyllic lifestyle like I mean obviously it's got its bad sides but man Instagram is great for that you know Well, thank you so much, Nikki. This is such a special treat for me personally, um, just having watched, you know, this this journey and this evolution um, from from the sidelines on Instagram. Um, but it has been so impressive to see the work that you're doing um, and to really bring your perspective into this entrepreneurship conversation on the Startup Women podcast, I think is, is one step of many uh, in how we can educate, support, um, and hopefully make some impactful change to really showcase, you know, women in farming and to get the right supports from all levels of you know government private sector lenders um there's some great space that i think we could make some meaningful impact on so incredible nikki thanks so much kayla thank you for joining us this week on the startup women podcast where we help women entrepreneurs to start and build thriving businesses thank you to the startup canada production team vdc and scotiabank for helping us to power women entrepreneurs Visit startupcan.ca forward slash women to download the playbook Resources for Women Entrepreneurs with a comprehensive list of support for you and your business. And visit startupcan.ca for the latest episodes of the Startup Canada podcast hosted by Rick Spence and plug into the Startup Canada network. Until next time, I'm Kayla Isabel. It's time to choose to challenge the status quo and unleash the economic potential of women.